This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Dan Fogelberg's Same Old Ang Syne. And this is our Story of the Song segment. And we're not going to tell a story of this song, though it's a heck of a song. And we tell stories of songs that have a story themselves. And by the way, the opening lyrics of that song you just heard, Met my old lover in the grocery store. The snow was falling on Christmas Eve. You want to hear what happens, don't you? And we've all been there, too, meeting that person that we broke up with, that person we went to school with, maybe wanting to avoid, maybe wanting to see. In a canon of personal songs, leader of the band stands out as one of Dan Fogelberg's most treasured. The song, which originally appeared on the singer-songwriter's 1981 album, The Innocent Age, is Fogelberg's loving tribute to his musician father, Lawrence. Fogelberg wrote this in 2003 about his dad. He was a musician, an educator, and band leader. I was so gratified that I was able to give him that song before he passed on. Fogelberg's dad died in August of 1982, but not before this hit song made him a celebrity with numerous media interviewers interested in him as its inspiration. Here's Dan Fogelberg speaking about his hit single, Leader of the Band, in 1991. I think I could only have written one song in my life. It would have been leader of the band. Because what that meant to my father and to me, there's no way I could quantify that or even explain it. Um, my father passed away over 10 years ago now, and he, he got to hear that song. He got to see this, enjoy the success of that song. People were calling him on the phone and interviewing him in his last days. You know, who is this man, the leader of the band, you know? And he just, he loved that. And I loved that because I, I respected him so much. I mean, he gave me everything I am, really. My mother and he were both musicians. And the idea of being a living legacy is really the truth. I don't think I'll ever be as accomplished a musician as he was. But um, I've had a different gift. It came to me in a different way. I've been able to reach and touch people with these songs that I write. And that one has probably touched more people more deeply than anything I've ever done. And by the way, don't we all want to have our sons and or daughters speak that way about us? And again, that's why we do these stories, folks, because you don't hear them anywhere else. Vogelberg's music was powerful in its simplicity. He didn't rely on the volume of his voice to convey his emotions. Instead, they came through in the soft, tender delivery and his amazing lyrics. Here, for example, is the chorus to leader of the band, in which Fogelberg cherishes and aspires to someday possess the same love and musical ability as his dad. And these are from the song. This is the chorus. The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old, but his blood runs through my instrument, and his song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. Here's Dan Fogelberg's love letter to his father, Lawrence. An only child alone and wild, a cabinet 
maker's son His hands were meant for different work And his heart was known to none He left his arm and went his lone And solitary way And he gave to me a gift I know I never can repay A quiet man of music Denied a simpler fate He tried to be a soldier once But his music wouldn't wait He earned his love through discipline A thundering velvet hand Gentle means of sculpting souls Took me years to understand The leader of the band is tired And his eyes are growing old But his blood runs through my instrument And his song is in my soul My life has been a poor attempt To imitate the man To the leader of the band My brother's lives were different For they heard another call One went to Chicago And the other to St. Paul And I'm in Colorado When I'm not in some hotel Living out this life I've chose And gone to know so well And the story of the song, Dan Fogelberg's tribute to his dad, Lawrence. The story of his song, Dan Fogelberg's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories. Thank you for the music and your stories of the road I thank you for the freedom when it came my time to go I thank you for the kindness and the times when you got tough And Papa, I don't think I said I love you near enough The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old But his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the There's a killer on the road 
brain is squirming like a toad. Take a long holiday. Let your children play. If you give this man a ride, sweet family will die. Killer on the road. This is our American stories. And back in the day, Opportunity called people of courage to chase the sun into the plains of the new American frontier. These men and women shaped a nation and birthed a new American mythology. Today, with the passing of time, the myth of the notorious highway robber Black Bart is coming face to face with reality. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of Black Bart. Ralphie's fantasy encounter with Black Bart in the 1983 film A Christmas Story leads one to believe that Black Bart was some desperado. What have we got here, folks? Well, we figure he's Black Bart, uh, Ralph. Well, says me, my trusty old Red Rider carbine action two on the shot range model air rifle. Lucky I got a compass in the stock. Well, I think I better have a look here. No he's not. In the 1870s, there was a dime novel that was loosely based on Black Bart's true story. A Christmas Story author, Gene Shepard, read this novel as a kid and included Ralphie's reincarnation of Black Bart as a desperado. Okay, Ralphie, you win this time, but we'll be back! Idiots, Bart! What if you do come back? You'll be pushing up daisies! But Black Bart's real story is far more fantastical than Ralphie's imagination. To tell the story of America's most successful and eccentric stagecoach robber is one of America's greatest storytellers and author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Roger McGrath is also a regular on the History Channel. Let's begin with Dr. Roger McGrath and the story of Highwaymen Black Bart. Black Bart was the most successful highwayman in American history. For more than eight years, uh, this would be from 1875 to 1883, he preyed on stagecoaches, robbing 29 of them. No other road agent could match Black Bart's record. Moreover, Black Bart was a gentleman. He always treated everyone courteously and took only the express box. He left the passengers untouched. Black Bart probably got away with upwards of $30,000. That would be something like $2 million in today's money. Black Bart's real name was Charles Bowles. He was born on a farm in upstate New York in 1831. His parents were recent immigrants from England. Little is known about his early years other than he grew up as a typical farm boy. At age 18, he and his older brother David left the farm to join the gold rush of 1849. They first prospected on the American River and then throughout the Motherlode country. Life in the diggings was rugged. 
And many a prospector died from disease, accident, or gunplay. David Bowles was one of those who met an early end. He grew ill and died in July 1852. Here's Black Bart biographer Gail Jenner. Charles was devastated. He had been the one to truly want to come out to California. He felt guilty. He was a restless soul. That played very heavily into the choices he made later on. Charles continued to prospect, in fact, for another two years. And then he drifted back to the Midwest. In Decatur, Illinois, he met and married a girl named Mary and settled down and began raising a family. When the Civil War erupted, Charles enlisted in the Union Army. For more than three years, he served with distinction. He fought in several major battles and was severely wounded in one of them but returned to fight again. He even served under General Sherman on his brutal march to the sea. Here's Civil War historian Harry Jones. To march with Sherman's army, you certainly are fit. He was very demanding of his soldiers. And being able to understand what trails will get you where, what trails could be easily ambushed and therefore you set up defenses for them at the proper places. That would be a value to someone who later becomes known as Black Bart. Charles rose to the rank of first sergeant before this last battle and then just before the war ended was commissioned as second lieutenant. After the war his gold fever returned. He left his wife Mary and his daughters in Illinois to go off to the mines of Montana and Idaho on foot. Every so often he sent Mary a letter saying that he'd be on his way home soon. The last letter Mary received came from Silver Bow, Montana in August 1871. Why he stopped writing after that, we don't know. As the months went by with no further word, Mary grew frantic and finally sold the family home to raise money for her search for her husband. Meanwhile, the missing husband continued prospecting, but as word as Montana's riches spread, the competition for claims increased. Well, you can thank Mr. Wells and Mr. Fargo. They just bought me out. Seems like they aimed to buy up the whole territory. Large companies rushed to capitalize on local strikes and eliminate the competition. They'd buy up businesses and all lands surrounding successful claims. Here again is Gail Jenner. There was mining going on in various sections of Montana. He did have a claim where he was in competition with other people also setting up claims and there was a lot of violence that was occurring around him. Mr. Bow. Welcome, gentlemen. What can I do for you? We want to buy your claim. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. Good day. Doesn't look like much is coming. There'll be plenty just as soon as the water comes up. Good day. It'd be a shame if it did it. Wells Fargo began consolidating its stage lines for new mining towns in Idaho, Utah, and Montana. Rumors of the company going into the mining business 
make Bowl suspicious. Just days after receiving offers for his claim, the water supply suddenly dried up. His claim was now worthless. Bowles is convinced it's no coincidence. Here's author of the American West, W.C. Jameson. What Wells Fargo did is divert the stream from which Bowles was panning the gold to where he was forced to abandon his gold mine. Many historians believe that this was the moment he set his sight on one of the most powerful companies in the West, Wells Fargo, making the company out to be responsible for his misfortune. A hardworking miner and former Union soldier with dreams of striking it rich made a bold decision to extract revenge. In 1874, Bowles left his claim and moved to the cosmopolitan hub of Northern California. Consumed by revenge, Bowles completely broke ties with his family, cut himself off from the past, and reinvented himself. He moved to San Francisco, all the while nursing this anger, this hatred toward Wells Fargo. In preparation for his revenge, Bowles did his homework. I watched the stages from a second camp, far from my home camp ascertain the exact time they passed. I found them to be at the same spot every morning at 7 a.m. All over Northern California, they were shipping lots of gold from one place to another. They had over 3,000 miles of stagecoach roads. It was a big target for thieves. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this riveting story, the real story, the story behind the story of Black Bart. And by the way, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. American stories and we continue with the story of Charles Bowles aka Black Bart and we had learned that lots of gold was shipping all around this country from place to place and my goodness that made those gold carriers ripe targets for highwaymen that is bandits let's continue with the story of Black Bart In July 1875, a stagecoach with a Wells Fargo Express box was working its way up a steep grade on the way from Sonora to Copperopolis in the Motherlode country. Just a few miles short of Copperopolis, a hooded figure suddenly jumped from behind a boulder. Put down that box. 
please. Well, the demand from this hooded figure was reinforced by a double-barreled shotgun aimed at the stagecoach driver. The robber's head was covered by a flower sack with two holes cut for the eyes, and even his boots couldn't be seen. They were covered by thick socks to avoid leaving tracks. As the driver grabbed the express box, Highwayman yelled an order over his shoulder. If he dares shoot, give him a solid volley, boys. The driver glanced up at the hillside behind the highwayman and thought he saw at least a half dozen rifle barrels aimed his way. It's called a Quaker gun trick. Used in the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, it's named for the Quakers, who, like bulls, oppose violence. The trick uses sticks to look like guns and logs to look like cannons to fool the enemy into believing they're facing a force much larger than they actually are. With a real sense of urgency, the driver threw the express box onto the road. The highwayman quickly removed several bags of gold coins. A frightened woman passenger tossed her purse out of the stagecoach and into the road. The highwayman picked it up bowed and returned it to her, saying in a deep and resonant voice, Madam, I have no desire of your money. In that respect, I honor only the good office of Wells Fargo. I don't know what you're reaching for, friend. Charles has hope sticks through the bushes so that it appears that there could be other guns around. Just give him what he wants. He's got his mask on, he's, he's got a duster on, he's got his gun pointed. He was an enigma. He was a very hard man to figure out. Good day to you, sir. Thank you, Kai. He disappeared into the brush and escaped on foot over 120 miles through rugged terrain, through the mountains, and back to San Francisco. He returned to high society in plain sight, where he developed an alter ego. He called himself Charles Bolton. Bolton's reputation grew as he became known as a successful gold prospector and socialite. Here's Old West historian Chris Entz. Charles Bowles went by Charles Bolton because it sounds very sophisticated. It has a certain dignity associated with it. He is as comfortable living in the wilderness as he is in the city. Yes, sir. More simple. Circumstances compelled me. I yielded to the temptation of crime only after enduring severe struggles from which I had no control. Following his first robbery, Bowles took odd jobs that pulled him away from the city and gave him access to new targets. He was trying just a little bit of everything. He tried school teaching for a while, which would have been unnatural for him because he was intelligent. He was sharp. <laughs> now let us turn to the case of Summerfield and that notorious bandit, Black Bart. He's incredibly well-read. In addition to Shakespeare and that kind of thing, he also reads the Sacramento Union. And in the Union paper is a story written by an attorney who does make up this character named Bartholomew Graham, or Black Bart. Charles Bowles adopted the name and transformed into highwayman Black Bart. 
Following Black Bart's first robbery, Wells Fargo detective James Hume was put on the case. Here again is Gail Jenner and historian Marshall Trimble. James Hume chose to become the kind of person who would never quit. He has an obsessive, compulsive kind of desire to make things right. Gentlemen. This is the beginning of this detective period. When there's a robbery, you don't just get out there and look for horse tracks. It gets much more sophisticated. Technology and such is starting to change as to how to track these guys down. And this is what Hume is uh, really adept at. Welcome to school, boy. Hume was one of the great detectives of the Old West. But this Black Bart character had him stumped. Gentlemen, our efforts up to this point have been unacceptable. He's making a mockery of us, and I will not stand for that. Hume begins to put together that this man is quite capable of covering long distances in between the robberies. He knows that it's not a multiple-person job, that this is a, a lone man. Beginning with a second stagecoach robbery, Black Bart would leave behind a verse or two of poetry. Hume, a man as cunning and restless as the bandit himself, read it. I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of Black Buck. Poet. He's mocking me. He's mocking me! Hume didn't know what to do with witness testimonies. How was his behavior, his demeanor? Did he threaten you or take any of your personal belongings? No, sir, he was polite. Said please and thank you. And that's what's left of the cash box over there. The public had doubts about Detective Hume and Wells Fargo. Hume took it personally. Wells Fargo was putting more and more pressure on James Hume. The newspapers are having a field day. There were lots and lots of articles about who is this Black Bart, and people are ridiculing both James Hume and Wells Fargo. They're becoming a joke, and so they're determined now to try and figure this out, and lots of pressure is coming from lots of different directions. Here's a quote from Hume in the San Francisco Examiner in 1884. I refuse to buy a romanticized image of Black Bart as fabricated by the press. He is a fraud who is Robin Hoodwinking a gullible public. Jim Hume began to piece together a physical description of Black Bart. Bart was armed, but he didn't shoot back, though. Nope. Not his style. No horse track. And he escapes on foot. As Black Bart's stage robberies continued, the price yeah. on his head increased. Wells Fargo offered a $300 reward. State of California chipped in another 300 and the U.S. government 200 The $800 total was really quite a sum back in the 1870s, something like $80,000 today. And when we come back, what happens next? And what a story, by the way. Feels a little bit like The Great Gatsby with a little bit of Jack London in it. It's a thriller. It's an American classic. Never knew the rest of this story, and you're about to hear it. Charles Bowles, 
becomes Charles Bolton. The world, at the time and now, knows him as Black Bart. This is Our American Stories. The story of Black Bart continues after these messages. And again, to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. And by the way, we love telling stories about the American West. And not in this particular case, but in so many cases, we use Phil Anschutz's terrific two books, Out Where the West Begins, as a subject and source material for those stories. We've done Samuel Colt's story, Jedediah Smith's, Levi Strauss's, which is a stemwinder, and the Coors family, you know, you take for granted Coors beer. Where did it come from? And who are the men and women who got it going? And why Denver? Why Colorado? These people came from Germany. Well, go to ouramericannetwork.org for all that we do and hundreds and hundreds of hours of American storytelling, classic American storytelling are there. When we last left off, Black Bart, well, the price on his head kept going up. Wells Fargo had money on his head. The American government... Lots of other private businesses. Well, there's a reason for it. Black Bart, well, he just kept hitting those stagecoaches. And as he kept hitting them, the price on his head, it just kept going up. And now we return to the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. Black Bart's luck nearly ran out on his 23rd stagecoach robbery. The stage was on its way from Laporte to Oroville when Black Bart blocked its path. Easy, boys. Easy does it. Keep those hands where I can see them. Nice and easy. Would you be so kind as to throw down that box? I'll get it right now for you, sir. Instead, the Wells Fargo guard swung his rifle around and fired. Black Bart leaped into the brush and ran for it. They didn't know it, but the bullet fired at Black Bart creased the outlaw's head. A fraction of an inch change in trajectory would have spelled the end for Black Bart. On a Sunday in November 1883, Black Bart's luck finally did run out. Early that morning, a stagecoach pulled out of Sonora bound for Milton. The driver of the stage was a veteran of the run, Raisin McConnell. At Reynolds Ferry on the Stanislaus River, McConnell picked up a passenger, 19-year-old Jimmy Rolleri. Rolleri operated the ferry, but it was still early in the morning. He thought he might go up the hill a ways and do a little hunting. When the stage began the long climb, 
O'Leary jumped off with a Winchester rifle in hand. Stage had nearly reached the summit when a hooded highwayman leaped from the brush. He trained a shotgun on McConnell. Throw down that box. I, I can't. Please. Bolt it to the floor. Well, it's lucky for you I brought my tools. Easy does it. You wouldn't want to spook the horses. Now come down off that stage, friend, and start walking and don't stop. McConnell tried to signal for Larry, who was casually walking up the road. Finally, McConnell got his attention. Just then, the highwayman straightened up with a sack full of gold. Or Larry fired. Highwayman stumbled, but managed to spring into the brush and disappear. McConnell reported the holdup. The local county sheriff, Ben Thorne, and his deputies were soon at the scene of the crime. They found a number of things the highwayman had left behind in his hasty departure. There was a black derby hat, two paper bags containing crackers and sugar, a pair of binoculars, and a handkerchief. Once back in his office, Sheriff Thorne inspected the items left behind at the scene of the robbery. He noticed some badly faded lettering on the handkerchief. He turned the handkerchief over to Wells Fargo detective Jim Hume, who in turn gave the handkerchief to Harry Morris. Hume had hired Morris six months earlier to do nothing but work on the robberies of Black Bart. Morris had recently retired as sheriff of Alameda County, and now he had his own private detective agency. He was one of the great lawmen of the Old West. Fresh sign. When uh, James discovers the handkerchief, he was delighted, and as he examines it, he sees the mark FX07, and he knows this was, in fact, a laundry mark. This man must be found. Hume decides we're going to have to track this laundry mark. Take your men and leave no stone unturned. So they go to 93 different laundries in the San Francisco area. Yes, sir, can I help you? Yes. Is that your mark? Uh, yes, that's our mark. From one of our customers, C.E. Bolton. He's a local gold prospector. Since Hume thought that Black Bart lived in San Francisco, Morris began his investigation there. Now, under the guise of a business proposition, Morris was introduced to Charles Bolton. Bolton looked every inch the mine owner he purported to be. He was dressed in an expensive tailored wool suit and a bowler hat. He carried a walking stick. A diamond ring was on one finger and a heavy gold watch was suspended from a gold chain. He was handsome with deep set blue eyes. He stood about five foot eight and was ramrod straight. He looked anything but a robber. Morris managed to get Bolton to an office where Jim Hume waited. So word on the street is you're quite the successful gold prospector. Tell me, Mr. Bolton, where are your mines located? Well, if it's one thing I've learned, sir, it's not to disclose too much information to a perfect stranger. <laughs> Mr. Bolton, 
I'd like you to meet Detective James Hume. Minutes later, a captain from the San Francisco Police Department arrived, took Bolton into custody. At the police station, Bolton was placed under arrest. He feigned astonishment and asked for what possible cause was he being arrested. Hume answered, because you are Black Bart. The infamous highwayman and poet. I had a premonition that this would happen today. Aren't you the lucky one? Charles Bowles wanted them to know that it was him. And to be able to tease and to play with the people that have been chasing him and trying to get at this, it gave him pleasure. You do want somebody to know. Buckbart pleaded guilty to the last of his robberies. Whereas the said C.E. Bolton is convicted of robbery by his own admission, he is therefore ordered, adjudged, and sentenced to San Quentin, the state prison for the period of seven years. He became a model prisoner. Take him away. And was released in January 1888. After serving a little more than four years, he was then 57 years old. Reporters waited outside for his release. Black Bart, are you going back to your life of robbing stagecoaches? No. I'm giving up my life of crime. Are you going to go back to writing poetry? Did you hear me, son? I said I'm done committing crimes. <laughs> After being released from San Quentin, Black Bart returned to San Francisco, and there he was offered the opportunity of appearing on stage in a theatrical production. Somebody wanted to take advantage of his notoriety, but he refused. Jim Hume had his men shadow Black Bart, but suddenly one day, early in March 1888, Black Bart gave him the slip. Bowles was a pretty smart guy. It is likely that he knew that, that Hume was following him. Hume perhaps had a hunch that maybe Bowles might return to his nefarious ways. Reports had Black Bart in several different western states, then in Mexico, Canada, Japan, China, and finally Australia. None of these reports, though, was ever confirmed. Black Bart America's most successful highwayman had simply disappeared. And what a story. And if you want to hear it again or share it with friends, again, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Boy, this story has it all. Guy's comfortable in the wilderness, in the big city. His brother dies early. He blames himself, tries to make a living honestly, feels like a big bad business had taken advantage of him. And by the way, we love telling stories about good businesses, but sometimes there are some bad ones. And he felt like Wells Fargo had cheated him out of his stake. And so he was going to take it back. What a story and great work as always. Greg Hengler, 
And by the way, Black Bart and James Hume reminds me of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Two people joined at the hip forever. And they are. Not sure why this isn't a movie, or hasn't been, but it should be. This is Lee Habib. Charles Bolton's story. Charles Knowles' story. Black Bart's story. They're all the same guy. Here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know, but whose life and whose voice you're sure to be captivated by. And today, Bob recalls one particular day during his 13-week stay in Marine Boot Camp. We had had a long day. And we were tired and very hungry. To make matters worse, we were one of the last platoons to get into the mess hall for dinner. As we filed in, you could see dusk was coming from the setting sun. The sun was rising when we started our day. After heaping my tray with all the food I could, I stood at attention along the table and waited for the command to sit and eat. Sergeant Calvert hollered in his deep and gravelly voice, and our butts hit the chair. Get up, he said. Get back to attention. Let's try that again. All I could think about was, oh, God, just let's get going here, man. This is time to eat. I just wanted to eat. He said, I want to hear one sound of 80 butts hitting the seat, not 80. But hey, seat. We repeated this exercise again and again until he was satisfied. What a jerk, I thought, as I sat down. Finally, he gave the command to eat at attention. We were not to look around or talk. Only then did he give us the command to eat. Staring down at the tray and shoveling food in, I wanted something to drink. In front of the recruit sitting next to me was a metallic pitcher containing the Kool-Aid. With very little motion, I tilted my head and imperceptibly whispered the words, Kool-Aid, when all of a sudden boots came charging down the length of the table rattling the trays with each stomp. Standing before me on top of the table with his boots straddling my tray was Sergeant Calvert. He looked down at me with the visage of a wrathful god. I thought he was going to kick my mouth in with the polished leather toe of his boot. I froze for a moment. I didn't know what to do. And then he told me, cursing and yelling with a thunderous voice, he said, are you suffering from rectal cranial inversion, Private McClellan? Is there something about the English language that you don't understand? You have disobeyed my orders. And for that, McClellan, you will pay. You will all pay. Now get up, all of you, and get out of here right now. 
Everybody fall outside into formation. Do you think you're at the slop shoot? This is no damn social club. Get outside and get into formation. One recruit ran out trying to shove food in his mouth until Staff Sergeant Fisher knocked the tray out of his hands, sending it and the food to the deck. Standing in the middle of the stampede, fleeing through the doorway, he knocked trays out of the hands of privates trying to poach food. I ran past the garbage can, knocked all the food out of the tray, stacked it on the wash rack, and lined up in formation. I learned that day that though the Marine Corps has to feed us, they don't have to give us any time to eat. It was at moments like this that I hated Sergeant Calvert the most. In all platoons, there's always one D.I. that is the most dreaded, feared, and despised drill instructor of all. In platoon 3095, that man was Sergeant Calvert. He was short, he was curt, monosyllabic, completely unsympathetic to our needs, and spoke with a deep, gargling voice that seemed to come up from his bowels. His diction was perfect, though. He had a passion for hard consonants and long, long vowels. Each curse that left his lips would be elongated as if it was a musical note. He was indifferent to life under his command and completely intolerant of individuals. I think the only book he'd ever read was the guidebook for Marines. Wearing his gray Marine Corps sweatshirt this morning was a sign that we would spend the day in hell. He approached me and with his smoky bare brim kept pushing the edge of it into my forehead while he upbraided me for thinking that his orders don't apply to me. He said that God had personally picked him to make my life as miserable as possible until I learned to follow directions. You seem to believe that my commands to eat and attention don't apply to you, Private McClellan. You must think you're someone very special. Is that what your mother told you? That you're very special? Very precious? Maybe she wouldn't approve of the way we do things down here. Maybe she should come down here and help you pack and take you home with her. Well, you, Private McClellan, are no longer important anymore. The Marine Corps is. No one's coming to rescue you. You asked to be here. We didn't ask you to come here. We didn't ask you to join. You will regret your attitude. Looking up to my face, the bill of his smoky bear kept tapping the bridge of my nose with its edge while he stuttered and screamed curses at me. Inches from my face, I had to stand staring straight ahead and feel the spray of his saliva spew out of his mouth, scattered among his curses. I stood his attention, standing as tall as I could to make him see he was smaller than I was and shorter than I was, and keeping my eyes looking straight ahead, I didn't flinch. And at that moment, all I was thinking about was shoving my hand down his throat and ripping his larynx out when he stopped abruptly and walked behind me. I stood waiting for something to happen, but nothing did. I could not see where he was nor what he was doing. So in a few seconds, I just decided to relax a little bit. And within seconds of that, I could feel his breath coarsely whispering into my ear from behind me. With his lips barely touching my earlobe, he cooed. You don't like me, do you, McClellan? I think you hate me. I think you hate me, don't you, Private McClellan? No, sir, I shouted in protest. He whispered to me, it breaks my heart to know that you're upset with me, Private McClellan. 
I thought we'd be good friends down here, you and me. Maybe you disapprove of my instructions. Am I hurting your feelings, Private McClellan? Are you going to write and tell your mother? No, sir, I yelled again in protest. Coming around from behind me, he once again pushed that brim into my forehead. And inches from my eyes, he said, I can see right now, Private, you are thinking of how much you would like to hurt me, aren't you? No, sir, I said. Oh, yes, you are, McClellan. Do I look stupid to you? You look stupid to me. And when we come back, we're going to find out what happens to Bob McClellan and Sergeant Calvert. The McClellan Files, here on Our American Stories. Turn to Bob McClellan's story about his Marine drill instructor, Sergeant Calvert, who made his life at Marine boot camp a living hell. I think you're a real dumb sh, Private. So let me make something real clear to you. Anytime you want a piece of me, you go for it. Look around first before you do and say goodbye to the world you knew. Because if you ever raise your hand towards me, you will never leave this base. With his voice rising louder and louder with every syllable, he hollered, I will break you like an egg. And after I'm done with you, I'll keep rotating your ass back for as long as it is necessary. Then widening his eyes, he looked through me saying, and you will never, ever, ever leave here. Do you understand me, Private? Yes, sir, I answered. I wanted to get under his skin in the worst way. But I knew I'd pay a terrible price for such foolishness. Boot camp is designed to ensure recruits are never right and never win. There is no victory here. My best outcome would be to survive it and head somewhere else. So I just took it. Standing in platoon formation, he ordered us to right face. He said we were going to go on a little run to help us digest our meals. He didn't want us to get fat and lazy and ruin our figure in a Marine Corps uniform. I was up front since I was one of the taller recruits, and up till now my wrestling experience kept me up with the challenge of conditioning. We headed out across the base down the road to the Naval Training Center at the end of the San Diego airport. When we turned onto this road, I knew he had lied to us. Passing by the Naval Training Center, We had to suffer the indignation of seeing sailors smoking, eating candy bars, drinking Cokes, and hollering insults at us. As we ran by in a cloud of dust, they gathered along the fence, yelling to us about how stupid we looked and what a bunch of dumbasses we were to join the Corps. At that moment, I thought maybe my father was right. I might have been a lot happier in the Navy. The sun was almost gone, and in the dim light, we meandered along every road on the base as fatigue began to take its toll. I could hear men behind me gasping for air. My own chest was heaving from breathing deeply to get as much air into my blood as possible. My head tilted forward and my shoulders started to slouch. My legs were tired and I was running out of gas. Soon, a couple men fell out to vomit their partially digested dinner. 
while a couple others just collapsed and sat down alongside the road. One was crying. For every man who fell, two recruits had to fall out, help him up, and carry him if necessary. Marines leave no man behind, and we will finish with everyone in the platoon returning, dead or alive, or we will do this all night. Sergeant Calvert? Oh, he was impeccably dressed in his starch utilities, showing no sign of fatigue or perspiration. He continued running, leaving a trail of recruits on the road behind him, with Sergeant Fisher kicking the behinds of the slackers to get off their butts and get back into the platoon. To inspire us, Sergeant Calvert called for a song whose rhythmic chant would sing out to all that Platoon 3095 was coming to an obstacle course near you. To instill pride in us, we sang, If I die in a combat zone, box me up and send me home, pin my medals across my chest, Tell my girl I did my best. Sound off. One, two. Sound off. Three, four. But as more and more men were falling behind, he said he was ashamed of us. He said we were a disgraceful and useless mob unworthy of dying in battle. So he changed the cadence to a song of shame and humiliation that turned the heads of the Marines within distance to hear us sing the Mickey Mouse Club song. And we sang. Host the leader of the club that's made for you and me. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. My chest was heaving and my lungs were burning. My feet were starting to shuffle. I could not believe I was still running. I was tempted so many times just to pull out of the formation and sit down. But I knew that dropping dead was preferable than having Sergeant Calvert's wrath riding me every day. But I was at the end. Soon, all I could think about was going home. I remembered what our DIs told us when we arrived. They told us when you think you can't go another step, you have another 30% left. Your mind will quit long before your body does. It is my job to take you to that 90% of that 30. I could not go any further, yet we just kept running along the road. Quitting was the only word that was on my mind. I thought the hell with him. I just can't go any farther. He then he ordered us to march, and we slowed down to a normal pace. We continued to march to allow all the stragglers to catch up. And when everyone was present, he gave us the command to halt. Sucking air deep into my lungs, I looked back down the road and realized that he took me far farther than I'd ever been or ever even willing to go. I was done miles back, and yet, here I am. Margins, boundaries, limitations, they have no place here. We're being trained for conditions and situations that are going to make us do the inconceivable. We weren't some football team at practice. This is not about conditioning, but about endurance and character. We were being trained to exceed our own expectations of ourselves and those of our enemies. The bar was going higher. My clothes were soaked with perspiration. I looked like I'd been standing in the rain. There was not a dry spot on my body. Calling us to attention, he stood in front of us, and looking past him, I recognized the sand pits. Oh, Jesus Christ, he's not serious. I thought he's not going to make us do this tonight after all he's put us through. What a son of a bitch. What a bastard. 
Sergeant Calvert found another 30% in us, and he wanted it. I knew it was going to be a very long night. I think, after a little run like that, you people could use some time at the beach. So we're going to play some games in the sand. You probably want to drink beer and play volleyball. Maybe you want to walk around and look at the girls in their bikinis. But not today, privates. Today there will be no bikinis on the beach because there are no bikinis in the jungles where you are going. Forward, march. Moving us into the deep sand, he commanded. Instead, you're going to do squat thrusts. Fifty count, all together, face half right. Ready, go. After hundreds of squat thrusts in the sand, to push-ups and sit-ups, we jumped up and down in the ankle-deep sand. Sand was everywhere, in our boots, mouths, nostrils, ears, trousers, and down in our underwear. It was all glued to our bodies with perspiration. A crust of sand covered our clothes like an extra layer of skin. The sand, wet from perspiration, clung to our bodies from head to toe. Most of us were unrecognizable with a thick layer of sand caked on our faces and necks. When we were finally exhausted, which didn't matter to him at all, he told us to slither on our bellies like other lower forms of life for 50 yards across the sand. Now it was pouring into our utilities and down into our t-shirts and boxers and socks. Grains of sand coated the inside of my mouth and stuck up in between my teeth and cheeks. I couldn't even spit it out because my mouth was so dry. It was dark now and late by the time we marched back to our huts. We were told the head would be closed until one hour after taps and we were to sleep in our utilities. Then I desperately needed water and a toothbrush. I climbed into my bunk with sand pouring out of my clothes onto my sheets. I cursed the day that Sergeant Calvert was born and I cursed his mother too. When taps blew and the lights clicked off, I took a couple seconds to say the prayer that I said every night. Oh God, when will this be over? Help me get out of here. And please God, send Sergeant Calvert to hell. And then I just passed out. And what storytelling, folks. And that's Bob McClellan and the McClellan Files. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look it up. And you'll see all of his work there. And you can pick up great stories in the middle. And my goodness, even in the middle, this one stands. And some lines that struck me about Sergeant Calvert. He took me farther than I'd ever been. This is not about conditioning, but endurance and character. And we were being trained to go beyond our expectations and our enemies. And how it ended. I cursed the day Sergeant Calvert was born. I cursed him. I cursed his mother, too. The McClellan Files, Bob McClellan's story, so many Marines' story, here on Our American Story.
y para Martané, llego a Puerto y para Mayarí. This is Our American Stories, and this next story is centered around a question. How did the Che Guevara t-shirt become an American phenomenon? Che was killed on October 9 in 1967 in Bolivia while leading a guerrilla movement that had failed to enlist a single peasant. The present-day cult of Che in America, the t-shirts, the paraphernalia, the posters, has succeeded in obscuring his dreadful reality. We kick off our story on Che with a performance from the television talent show Star Academy. As a giant flag of Che waves in the background, the singers and background dancers wear the Che communist beret and sing an ode to their hero they call Until Forever Commander. The chorus sounds like something that would be sung to a North Korean dictator. Here lies the clear, the dear transparency of your beloved presence, Commander Che Guevara. Before there was Oprah, Madonna, or Bono, there was Che. Type Che Guevara into eBay and you get a staggering 33,000 results. From flags to iPhone cases, cigarette lighters, and perhaps most brilliantly of all, wallets. Of course, there is also the t-shirt. Thousands of them. Go to any protest, rock concert, or college campus and you're bound to see the image of the socialist heartthrob in a beret silk-screened on the front of a t-shirt. Che's image is one of popular culture's greatest ironies, that a photograph of someone who gave up his life for communism is now a quintessential capitalist brand. And irony upon irony, the man whose propaganda machine set the Che myth in motion is none other than the former Cuban president, Fidel Castro. How did Che Guevara, the communist terrorist revolutionary who murdered hungry children and became an icon around the world for his role in the 1959 communist takeover of Cuba, end up becoming the most commercial image in the world? Let's find out from Humberto Fontova. Humberto was seven years old when his family fled the Fidel and Che-led takeover of Cuba in 1961. He now lives in the United States and holds a master's degree in Latin American studies and has written books on both Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. I asked him to uncover how the Che legend and especially the origins of the Che t-shirt began. Well, the astounding thing about Che Guevara is how a complete and utter failure in everything he attempted in life could have become so famous. Castro himself said, propaganda is at the heart of our struggle. Che Guevara himself, in his diaries, said, much more important than guerrilla recruits were American media recruits to export our propaganda. There it is. But the Che Guevara phenomenon started after he was dead. That's when that picture was cropped and dusted off. 
As his former comrades would have told you, Fidel Castro only praised the dead. Fidel's historical revisionism of Che and his use of Che's image have been swallowed by useful idiots, the name Stalin gave to foolish Westerners who parroted his lies about communism's success. Che was the architect of Cuba's forced labor camps, which by 1965 were transformed into concentration camps for dissidents, homosexuals, Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Cubans of other religious sects. Anyone who refused to think, speak, and act in accordance with the Communist Party line was an affront to Che. This explains why the United States was his primary object of hate. In fact, he hoped to start a third world war. Here again is Humberto Fantova. It was shortly after the missile crisis that uh, he thought he was talking off the record to the London Daily Worker. And he said, if the missiles had remained in Cuba, we would have fired them against the heart of the United States, including New York City. This was in November of 1962. And here's what happened November of that year again. J. Edgar Hoover's FBI uncovered a plot in Manhattan. Here were the targets. Bloomingdale's, Macy's, Gimbel's, and Grand Central Terminal. 500 kilos of TNT were to be set off in them. The date was going to be the day after Thanksgiving of 1962. The day of the Macy's Day Parade. Macy's by itself gets 50,000 shoppers on that one day, or did so back in 1962. Jagger Hoover's FBI had infiltrated the plot. They rounded up the plotters. And so here was Che Guevara planning to blow up Manhattan. If Che's terrorist plot on New York City would have not been stopped, it would have made 9-11 the second worst terrorist attack on the United States. Che's image has been sold on products by companies including Taco Bell, Gap, Urban Outfitters, Vans, and Louis Vuitton. But the most widespread of all is the humble t-shirt, worn by the likes of Prince Harry, Madonna, Carlos Santana, the band Rage Against the Machine, Johnny Depp, and Jay-Z who raps, I'm like Che Guevara with bling on. The TV show South Park and The Simpsons have both lampooned Che t-shirt wearers. Here's the South Park episode where 10-year-old Kyle starts wearing a Che t-shirt and attends a music festival after trying to sell magazines to a group of Che-loving hippies. Oh, wow. You guys shouldn't be doing that. Don't you know what you're doing to the world? Well, what do you mean? You're playing into the corporate game. See, the corporations are trying to turn you into little Eichmanns so that they can make money. Who are the corporations? The corporations run the entire world, and now they've fooled you into working for them. Are you serious? We never heard that. We just spent our first semester at college. Our professors opened our eyes. The government is using its corporate ties to make you sell magazines so they can get rich. Well, well what do we do? Just hang with us for a bit. We'll fill you in on everything you haven't been told. Wow, this band is so crunchy. Dude, I need more weed. So it seems like we have enough people now. When do we start taking down the corporations? Yeah, man, the corporations. 
Right now, they're raping the world for money. Yeah, so where are they? Let's go get them. Right now, we're proving we don't need corporations. We don't need money. This can become a commune where everyone just helps each other. Yeah, we'll have one guy who, like, who, like makes bread. And one guy who, like, looks out for other people's safety. You mean like a baker and a cop? No, no, can't you imagine a place where people live together and, like, provide services for each other in exchange for their services? Yeah, it's called a town. You kids just haven't been to college yet. But just you wait. This thing is about to get huge! Hollywood has advanced the chain myth with movies like Robert Redford's Motorcycle Diaries and Academy Award-winning director Steven Soderbergh's two-part biopic starring the incredibly gifted actor Benicio Del Toro as Che. Here's a clip. What is the most important quality for a revolutionary to possess? El amor. Love. Love. Love of humanity, of justice and truth. The irony is that Che jailed or exiled most of Cuba's best writers, poets, musicians, and filmmakers. He detested long hair, lazy youths, rebellion, freedom, and independence. He declared that individualism must disappear. And when we come back, more on Che Guevara. This is Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we return to the question, how did the Che Guevara t-shirt become such an American and worldwide phenomenon? Let's return to Greg Hengler and the story. Here again is Humberto Fantova. So you had forced labor camps, and those were the ones that the youth, the long-haired youth, went to. That's another one of the fantastic ironies of this is, is that the co-founder of the only regime in modern history to have actually outlawed rock music and actually persecuted, punished, and tortured rock music listeners is Che Guevara. Because here's what happened, think about it. Kids were trying to listen to the Beatles, or Beatles and Rolling Stones music and so forth was outlawed in Cuba. So you'd have places like public parks and so forth where young kids would get together and who were trying to grow their hair long and, you know, they'd have uh, trying to listen to the music under transistors uh, from the U.S. trying to get you at stations to listen to the Beatles and the Stones and so forth. Well, military trucks would just show up and surround the area and simply round everybody there. Imagine a... Uh, a Woodstock 3 or Lollapalooza surrounded by uh, National Guard trucks who wound up everybody there with billy clubs and whips and send them to a forced labor camp. And then imagine the groups who played at Lollapalooza 
or Woodstock wearing T-shirts and hailing the people who ordered the Roundup. <laughs> That's essentially what you have in the case of Cuba and Che Guevara. When Paquito de Riviera met Che, he recalls how hostile Che was towards his dream of becoming a musician. It was the moment he knew he had to leave Cuba. Here's de Riviera. Che was an inspiration for me because ever since I thought I had to get out of this island as soon as I can because I am in the wrong place at the wrong time. Di Riviera did escape Cuba. He's won 12 Grammy Awards since his arrival to America, playing the music Che tried to silence. Here's jazz legend Dizzy Gillespie introducing Paquito Di Riviera. And now we'd like to introduce a young man who has become a grandmaster in this Native American art form. Only he is from the island of Cuba. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure now to introduce Mr. Paquito de Rivera. Chase's symbol of rebellion actually enforced conformity at the point of a gun, literally. Here's how Humberto Fantova feels about guitarist Carlos Santana, whose musical signatures is one of the world's best known. Ladies and gents, turn up the sound system to the sound of Carlos Santana. Carlos Santana thought he was the coolest, sharpest guy in the world while pridefully showing off the emblem of a regime that made it a criminal offense to listen to Carlos Santana music. See, you can make a movie out of Che, and I wish somebody would, but it would have to be something along the lines of a Marx Brothers movie, or a Peter Sellers movie, or a Monty Python movie. You can have a lot of fun because of the absolute idiocies that people who admire him pull off. Dee Riviera also wrote an open letter to Santana after his Oscar performance in which the musician wore a chase shirt under a huge cross necklace. Here's Dee Riviera. That is like entering a synagogue with a swastika on your, on your, on your chest. That doesn't make any sense. He hates artists. So how is it possible that artists still today support uh, the image of Che Guevara? Just the sight of a Nazi swastika fills us with dread, and for good reason. Adolf Hitler is one of the world's most notorious mass murderers. That's why the U.S. and British tabloids unloaded on Prince Harry when he wore a Nazi uniform to a costume party. But when the prince hit the town in a chase shirt, the press yawned. We're rightly horrified by fascist murderers. Why aren't we also horrified by communist killers? Calculating communist torture and death tolls can be a daunting challenge, but one taken on by Harvard University Press's Black Book of Communism. The book's authors, themselves former communists, estimate that Che established labor camps executed what would be equivalent of over three million executions in the United States. Here's Humberto Vantova. We're talking about a regime that jailed and tortured at a higher rate than Stalin and that murdered more political prisoners in his first three years in power than Hitler's regime murdered 
in its first six years of power. And that's an absolute number. Cuba is only a nation of 6.4 million people in 1960. 59 when Che Castro and we don't know though according to the black book of communism 16,000 ended up getting murdered uh, during the course mostly during the early 60s the total body count for the Cuban revolution and for this we have to include those who died trying to escape Cuba came to about a hundred thousand according to an outfit known as the Cuba archive which has done a just a superb job trying to catalog all of the deaths associated with the Cuban Revolution, the firing squads, the forced labor camps, beatings to death in prisons, and people who have died trying to escape. And it's important to include those who died trying to escape because, folks, about two to 300 Germans died overall trying to escape East Germany. The estimates of the number of Cubans that have died trying to escape the regime co-founded by Che Guevara and Fidel Castro runs from about 25,000 to 45,000 have died. And horribly, they were machine gunned while trying to escape. They were ripped apart by sharks. They died of starvation, of dehydration, horrible deaths trying to escape Cuba. And what makes this most significant is that prior to the Castro Chair Revolution, Cuba took in more immigrants in the early part of the 20th century than did the United States. And this was including the Ellis Island years, and most of these immigrants came from Europe. In other words, people used to be as desperate to enter Cuba pre-Castro and Che as it became desperate to escape Cuba post-Castro and Che. If you think the Hitler-Stalin-Che death comparison is hard to believe, try imagining this. Che would sign off his letters as Stalin the Second. In 2012, the multinational clothing corporation Urban Outfitters stopped carrying their Che-fronted merchandise after an open letter on behalf of the Human Rights Foundation called their attention to his bloody and anti-democratic legacy, namely that he represents tyranny and repression for the millions of people who have suffered under communism. Target recently pulled their 24-CD carrying case decorated with the image of Che Guevara after intense customer backlash. One customer remarked, What's next? Pol Pot pajamas? Currently, Walmart stands alone with several pages of Che Guevara merchandise for sale on its website. One of the posters for sale features this propaganda quote by the sadistic torturer. Let me say at the risk of seeming ridiculous, that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. Investors Business Daily lamented in an editorial that all this reflects an indifference to history. It is customary for followers of a cult not to know the real-life story of their hero, the historical truth. Young Argentines have come up with an expression for this cultural phenomenon that rhymes perfectly in Spanish. I have a Che t-shirt, and I don't know why. 
Chase cult status among disaffected youth and others unhappy with the state of the world has endured, with Chase's well-documented reputation for brutality overlooked. In the end, ignorance, of course, accounts for much of the Che myth. But myth can tell you as much about an era as truth. And so it is that thanks to Che's own testimonials, his thoughts, and his deeds, and thanks also to his premature departure, we know exactly how deluded so many of our contemporaries are about so much. The only question is whether Che fans are too ignorant to realize they've been duped or too anti-American to care. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And there you have it. Great job as always, Greg. How did the Che Guevara t-shirt become an American phenomenon? A story wrapped around a question, Che Guevara's story, which affects so many people who have kids at college campuses and see that image. Well, now you have a story to tell those young people, a story to share. Che Guevara's story here on Our American Stories. Thank you.